everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining. It's a new year, it's a new decade, and it is a presidential election year. And that means there are going to be some really big issues that will shape the conversations in our political discourse and around our dinner tables in 2020. We want to help unpack the terms and the policies associated with some of those big topics that will be coming up throughout the year. And so we are starting a new series that we're calling Defining 2020. And that's where we're going to kind of drill down on some of these issues, define the terms that are involved and define the different positions and the policy dynamics that surround these issues. First up is the environment. And this hour, we're going to dig into everything from PFAS and environmental racism to the Green New Deal. And even if you have not heard of it yet, the Blue New Deal. And our guest for the hour is environmental law expert Nick Schreck, who is uh, the director of the clinical programs and associate professor of law at the University of Detroit Mercy Law School. Nick, Welcome back to Detroit Today. Great to be with you, Stephen. Thank you. And of course, Happy New Year. Same to you. All right. Let's start with the, I think, most significant environmental story that we're facing right here in Metro Detroit right now. There is green ooze coming from a pipe into our stormwater, wastewater system, presumably going into Lake St. Clair and the Detroit River. Uh, I, I'm going to try to pronounce this chemical. It is hexavalent chromium. Is that well right? Well done, yes. Yeah, close there, right? <laughs> uh, it is leaking out onto 696. Let's start with what hexavalent chromium is, where it's coming from, and what the danger is from this problem. Right. So this is a chemical that's used primarily in electroplating, which is, you know, they the plate metal. And there was this facility um, in Madison Heights that closed a few years ago that was storing this chemical and other chemicals. And um, what happened was this facility was shut down because they were illegally storing these materials. They had a bunch of barrels of um, hazardous waste basically sitting in a pit in the basement of this facility. And uh, it started leaking into the ground. And so the facility was shut down. The Environmental Protection Agency did a cleanup. Um, They kind of cleaned out this pit where all of this uh, chemical soup was, and then they filled it in with pea gravel, and they thought that that was enough to keep the the chemicals from migrating off the site. But as we've seen now, this this green ooze, as you said, um, it kind of reminds me of of slime from Ghostbusters or something, you know, like Slimer came through. Um, But really (laughs) scary stuff because this this chromium-6 or hexavalent chromium um, is carcinogenic. It causes cancer. This is the chemical that made Erin Brockovich famous, right, when she sued the state of California. Um, And so a lot of concerns about where this stuff could potentially be going to. Um, One, I guess, good thing about this is that Folks in this area of, of Michigan, this part of the state, were on the drinking water system through the city of Detroit, the Great Lakes Water Authority drinking water system. So there isn't really a concern of this stuff getting into our drinking water. The concern is that it could migrate into the surface waters, you know, make its way all the way to Lake St. Clair. Mm-hmm. Um, but for a drinking water issue, um, thankfully, you know, folks aren't on groundwater wells in this area, so we don't have to worry about that. But this is just not a good sign. And, and again, kind of a failure of cleanup. And this is... Um, I mentioned the EPA, but then also Michigan, our, our environment, Great Lakes and Energy Department, um, you know, really needs to, to get a handle on how this stuff is migrating off the site. So what they're doing is they're doing soil borings where they actually drill into the soil. They're testing um, to see that if we know about this, this chromium-6, but there could be other chemicals. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that was stored at this facility. Yeah. Uh, if this were to get into Lake St. Clair, what would be the 
the danger. It, it, it is a very dangerous chemical, as you point out. But is it enough to threaten our drinking supply? Well, uh, Candace Miller, who now is the uh, Water Resource Commissioner in Macomb County, she was out um, the last couple of days with some statements, and she said, you know, dilution is not the solution to pollution, which is something I tell my students all the time. That used to be the argument back, um, you know, pre-1950s, where people would say, I just put it out there in the lake, and it'll dissipate, and it'll go away. Well, now we know that a lot of these chemicals don't. They really don't break down naturally in the environment. And so the concern is that if you have enough of this stuff, this chromium-6 or other contaminants that make their way into Lake St. Clair, of course, that is upstream from one of our drinking water intakes for the city of Detroit, which is near Belle Isle. So, you know, you, you worry about those types of things getting into our water. Now, I think the amount of a concentration that you would get from this type of a spill would, would not be significant from a drinking water safety perspective. But I think this sort of shines a light on this issue that we have of contaminated parcels. And what I mean by that is uh, land that has been contaminated with chemicals all over southeast Michigan mm-hmm. – These are things sometimes that we call legacy pollutants, which means that the facility that could cause the pollution, maybe it doesn't exist anymore. Maybe the owners are gone. Maybe they're bankrupt. There's no money. Um, And so then we have these contaminated sites that are left, and it's the public holding the bag to do the cleanup. And then we get into the question about who pays for it, where does the money come from, um, and all of those discussions. So the concern would be longer term, you know, if if there's this leak and how long has it been leaking and how much of it has made its way into Lake St. Clair, that's where we would worry about a potential uh, drinking water issue. Uh, but right now, I mean, the, the amount that's, that's kind of oozing out of the ground there near the highway um, probably isn't something that we have to be super concerned about with drinking water. But again, um, we're worried about long-term exposure with this type of thing. So you want to make sure to limit that as much as possible. Yeah. Well, one of the things about this that has struck me is the kind of cavalier response that people are having. Oh, well, it's green ooze coming out of the pipe on 696. It's kind of funny, something we can make fun of. But it's not. I mean, no. the, the, these are very serious issues. And as you point out, if this one company was doing this irregularly or illegally and contaminating their site, how many other industrial sites in southeast Michigan have similar problems that they either know about or even worse? don't know about. That's right. And there, there's a huge problem here with a lack of inspections and a lack of enforcement. And this gets back to a budget issue. I mean, we have, it was formerly called the Department of Environmental Quality here in Michigan. Now it's Eagle Environment, Great Lakes and Energy. That department over the last really 30 years has sustained a number of cuts from repeated administrations. Um, you know, the Engler administration um, kind of famously took the hatchet to the to the DEQ. Um, but, you know, it's, it had cuts for, for many years as the state was start struggling financially and all of that. Um, we just don't have the amount of staff that we need to go out and do spot inspections to make sure that these facilities are following the rules and held accountable. This particular place with the Green News, I mean, we knew about it, right? They knew that they were having these problems. We had a cleanup that occurred and still we're having this problem of this pollution migrating off the site. So, so this one is, I I think it's even more dramatic of a failure from a regulatory perspective that we knew about it. This wasn't something that, you know, just popped up out of nowhere. We knew this facility was dangerous and that it had already been shut down. I believe the former owner is, you know, facing jail time already. Um, and you know, maybe some more charges coming down the, down the road for him. Mm. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, I'm glad you've joined. My guest is Nick Schreck. He's an environmental law expert and director of clinical programs and associate professor of law at the University of Detroit Mercy Law School. He is joining us as the inaugural guest, the initial guest in a new series that we are launching here on WDET called Defining 2020 
where we are going to drill down on a lot of the issues that will challenge us in 2020, which is a big year for lots of different reasons, not least of which is the presidential election, which will take place in November. But of course, we also have lots of other things going on. The census, for instance, is unfolding around the country this year as well. This Today, we are talking about the environment and the many different environmental challenges that we have here in Southeast Michigan and around the nation. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call and tell us what you're thinking about as far as the environment and climate change now and in the future. Uh, We were just talking about this green ooze coming out of a pipe on I-696. Is this something that you've seen? Is this something that concerns you about the way we deal with dangerous chemicals here in the massively industrial South? East part of our state. Uh, what about the massive fires that are burning in Australia and what that might tell us about the onset of a climate crisis? And is it environmental racism or other ways people with fewer resources are disproportionately affected by environmental problems? We're going to talk a little about environmental racism in a little bit. As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Before we move on to our next subject, I want to go to Charlie in Detroit who has something specific to add to the conversation about this green ooze on 696. Charlie, what's on your mind? Yeah. Hi. Um, Well, yeah, uh, our company's out there sucking up the green ooze before it gets into the sewers and has been for a couple weeks, but uh, I've dealt with this kind of stuff for 35 years in this business, and unfortunately, it's all over the place, all over the Detroit metro area, Um, well, really anywhere where there's heavy industry. And it's just due to a lack of enforcement regulations that, you know, didn't used to be on the books but are now, and, you know, they just don't have enough staff to enforce it. I mean, think back to the financial crisis. GM was basically let off the hook by the government for sites all over the country. And we, the taxpayers, are now paying to get those cleaned up. And, you know, it's just it's just poor enforcement and not holding companies to account, unfortunately. Hmm. Uh, Charlie, I really appreciate the call and uh, that that insight. You know, Nick Shark, I wonder how much burden or concern we ought to be placing on the EPA. I was a little mm-hmm. surprised by the EPA's reaction to this. It was a little meh. <laughs> right. Right. I, you know, kind of like, oh, we've got bigger fish to fry or something like that. Um, well, and, and going back to Charlie's point, I mean, he's absolutely correct. Um, we talked about staff cuts and budget cuts at DEQ and now um, now at Eagle. And um, we've, we've heard some, I think, encouraging statements from Governor Whitmer and her administration about trying to kind of reinvigorate the enforcement capabilities of Eagle. Um, but the other side of the coin there is our kind of more law enforcement perspective. And that's where we have to look at the attorney general's office. And we have had you know, decades again in this state of relatively lax enforcement from our attorney general's office going after environmental criminals, people that are intentionally breaking the law. You know, accidents happen. We have to be prepared for that. But this is the kind of thing here where you have someone intentionally storing the stuff, knowing that it was a violation, no, getting noted violation letters repeatedly from the state and continuing to um, to act illegally. And that's where we really need to just drop the hammer on these people. I mean, it's time to make an example of some of these folks. Um, the, these kinds of things keep happening and um, really we need to make sure that they don't. And so we do have laws on the books. You know, there's a law called the Resource Conservation Recovery Act, RICRA, an equivalent here in Michigan. And that law follows hazardous waste from the cradle to the grave. We want to track it from when it's created to the time that it's uh, 
disposed of on down the line. They have to have manifests. They have to track the waste, all that type of stuff. We have a really comprehensive record-keeping program. And so we should know where this stuff is. We should know what it is and how to clean it up. Um, but when you have these people like like this this gentleman here at this electroplating facility acting outside the law, they need to be held accountable. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's change the subject a little here and talk about PFAS, which is something that we hear a lot about and are likely to continue to hear about in 2020. What does PFAS actually stand for? I think that's one of the questions that lots of people have. We use that that acronym a lot and don't explain what it is. Right. Uh, let's talk about what it is, where it comes from, and what the concerns are. Yeah, so so PFAS, that would stand for per and polyfluoral alcohol substances. And th- there's a whole list of, so so PFAS, you might hear PFOS, PFOS, or Gen X is another type of, you know, not my generation, but but a type of chemicals <laughs> um, that, are, that are harmful here. What all of these things are, are these are chemicals that have been used very widely in household products and in industrial applications. So things like nonstick coating on pots and pans, uh, waterproofing on clothing and shoes, firefighting foam, which has been a big issue here in Michigan up at the Wordsmith Air Force Base um, up near Oscoda. And what they are, these basically just really long chemical strands of carbon, um, and they don't break down in the environment. So the thinking was when these came out is it was like, oh, sort of a a miracle product where, um, you know, you don't have to scrub and scour your pots and pans. The the food waste just comes off. Um, But now we're finding that these these compounds do not break down in the environment and we ingest them into our bodies, either through drinking water or maybe small particles coming um, into the food supply as well. and we, we don't get rid of them from our bodies. And over the long term, they can cause uh, perhaps kidney problems, liver problems, um, that type of thing. And so very, very concerned about PFAS here in Michigan because we've had um, very large, um, high incidence of exposure in a couple sites. I mentioned the old Air Force Base up there in Oscoda where they were using all sorts of firefighting foam. Also Wolverine Worldwide, which is the shoe company. People might remember Hush Puppies. Um, <laughs> they were using a lot of this, these chemicals for waterproofing, and now we've got you know massive groundwater contamination, but also contamination of the Huron River um, from PFAS as well. So it's been a big issue in Michigan. Michigan has sort of responded more rapidly than other states. We've done a lot of sampling. Where we're looking for this stuff, we're finding it. Um, leaching out of landfills, the kind of water and waste that, that drains out of landfills. We're finding PFAS there. We're finding it a lot of these older industrial sites as well as manufacturing facilities where we know they were using it. Um, now the question is, what will be the standard be for drinking water? We don't currently have a, a regulation, a standard in place, but that will be rolled out in Michigan over the course of 2020. Um, so that's something folks should track. You know, Make sure that if, if you're interested in protecting our drinking water that you you know contact your state legislator, let them know, hey, these, these regulations are, are coming down the road. I'm really concerned about it. I want to make sure we have a good, strong, protective standard here in Michigan. And are we making progress with PFAS? And I think that's a really important question when we talk about environmental issues. Often, I think we frame them in the context of the the, the issue itself and the problem and don't talk about how or how how well we are we are dealing with it. PFAS been around for a while. We've right. known about it for some time. There has been a response. Is it working? Well, um, it's a really difficult question because there's there's so much of it already out there in the environment, as you said. I mean, we've we've been producing it, putting it in products for quite some time, and so we'll continue to deal with it. I mean, I think we're making progress to the extent that now we know it's an issue. We're looking at drinking water standards, meaning that it will have to be treated and removed from from drinking water. That's a step in the right direction. You know, the problem here, and this is really 
I think, a, a symptom across the field of environmental law. So we tend to be reactive. We tend to see something that's a problem. It's identified as carcinogenic or cancer-causing. Well, then we're going to regulate it. Um, a lot of our, our reviews end up being um, after the fact, post hoc type reviews. And so what concerns me is that if, if we ban PFAS, we ban PFO, or we ban these Gen X chemicals, they're going to come up with something similar, right? And, um, and until we really change our regulations and the environmental review we do on the front end, meaning before products are released onto the market, thinking about what the long-term environmental consequences could be, this is going to continue to be a problem. So, I mean, I think it's, it's here in Michigan, I mean, we are on fire looking at um, drinking water issues, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Flint, the, the tragedy up there still ongoing for many people. Um, of the lead in the water crisis, now you know dealing with um, all the other drinking water issues that we have, like this this uh, chromium six that potentially could be getting into Lake St. Clair. I mean, people are really tuned in to our water and the drinking water uh, threats that we we face, and so I think that's a good thing. We're going to demand additional regulations, which over the long term I think will be more protective for us. Hmm. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Call and tell us what is on your mind about the environment and climate change. We're talking this hour about those issues as part of our new series, Defining 2020. Uh, Let's talk about fracking. That's another term that we hear an awful lot when we talk about environmental issues. Uh, What is fracking? What are the risks? And why is it happening? Yeah, so this is basically, it's a a technique used in oil and gas drilling. And uh, what industry would call it is a well completion technique. Um, And this is, the the full word is hydraulic fracturing, which has been shortened down to fracking. And basically what it is, is you you take an oil or gas well, um, and then you have a a, a truck on site that pressurizes water mixed with some chemicals and then something that they call propant, which is either sand or small like ceramic beads that then they force down into the well hole and crack the shale. Um, and the, the shale rock within that shale, there's oil or gas deposits, whatever they're actually going for with that particular well. And the fracking fluid and the propant allows the oil and gas to then be released from these fissures or cracks in the shale and make its way up the pipe to the top of the well where it can be extracted and and used. So concerns with fracking, there are many. And this was a really big issue in Michigan, oh, about six or seven years ago when we saw oil and gas prices um, that were much higher than they are today. Although (laughs) I guess they're spiking today as we speak. Um, But um, in Michigan, there there was several auctions where our state was auctioning off lease rights to oil and gas um, in, in areas that were owned by the state, state land. And we saw a big boom in um, fracking and, the, and the, the leases for fracking wells in Michigan. It's died down a little bit because oil prices have been low and the shale rock is deeper in Michigan, harder to get to than in other parts of the country like uh, North and South Dakota, where there's large-scale fracking operations ongoing. So concerns are contamination of that water. So when you mix the chemicals in, that, that water is then contaminated. Here in Michigan, it has to be captured at the well site and then hauled off and stored, which practically means we're injecting it into the ground and, and <laughs> storage wells, which um, raises other concerns. Uh, so you have p- potential issues with the security of the well where you're doing the fracking. You could potentially have a rupture and maybe some um, contamination of a groundwater supply. That's one concern. But it's also just that contamination of the water that's used in the process that then is kind of removed from our water cycle and not be able to put back into productive use. And then I guess there's the, the issues of anytime you're putting in an oil or gas well, you have a lot of surface disturbance. You have to cut down trees, clear land, build roads through areas that might have been forested to get trucks and um, equipment in and that type of thing. 
And and then ultimately there's the issue of we're still then getting fossil fuels out of the ground that we're using and, and, and continuing on this trajectory uh, to a warming climate as long as we continue to be using fossil fuels. Um, and so so that the, all of those things kind of mixed together are concerns that folks have with fracking. And here in Michigan, it was largely a water contamination and a water quantity issue where they're, they're using all this groundwater to then put back into the well to, to, to frack and get the gas or oil out of the ground. Uh, I want to take a break here. And uh, when we come back, we're going to continue to talk about the environment and climate change and other issues that will come up here in 2020. We want to continue to hear from you as well. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also join us on Facebook and on Twitter. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. We are talking about the environment this hour as part of a new series here on WDET in Detroit Today called Defining 2020, where we are going to break down and drill down on some of the issues that will challenge us in 2020 as we elect a president, maybe a new president, maybe the same president, uh, and deal with a host of other issues, including the U.S. Census, which is going to unfold uh, this year. Uh, We want to hear from you as well. What do you think about the environment? What do you think about climate change and environmental racism? That is an issue that goes beyond each calendar year, and each presidential election seems to be with us consistently now. Uh, What are the things that concern you about the environment? Are you watching this green ooze come out of a pipe on 696 and wondering what effect it will have on drinking water, perhaps? Uh, Are you watching the fires, the really, really intense fires in places like Australia and wondering what role climate change may be playing in those kinds of disasters? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also join us on Facebook and on Twitter, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, My guest is Nick Schreck. He's an environmental law expert and director of clinical programs and associate professor of law at the University of Detroit Mercy Law School. He joins us frequently here on the show and at WDET to talk about uh, these environmental issues. Uh, Before we move on, uh, Nick, I want to get back to the phones here. Let's go to Jim in Pontiac. Jim, welcome to the show. Well, good morning. Thanks for uh, having us on. Sure. Go ahead. Uh, I uh, I just want to say I I, I have not found a single thing your guest has said that I I disagree with. I think part of what we're having an issue with, especially now, and as each president takes over, Democrat and Republican, we see enforcement increase and then draw back. So under under uh, Trump, we've seen enforcement drop significantly. I think they said that uh, settlements for for fines and things are down like three quarters um, since he came into office. And um, it's it's basically called regulatory capture, where now the people that are running it used to be lobbyists for the industries and they're running it now. So. To me, that's a huge part of what we're, we're facing um, on, the, on, on the state side here in Michigan. Well, every year the Republicans come in and they have to have a tax cut. So then we'll, we've got to cut somewhere. So they keep cutting environmental because they're against, you know, environmental programs as a rule anyway. So 
Um, and then we have climate change, which is for them, um, it's, it's part of their canon of ethics that there's no such thing. And um, that we, we can't do anything about it because it's a communist plot. It's a China's <laughs> plot, whatever. And um, so we're, we're in this place now where ideo- ideology makes more, much more of an impact than any kind of caring about the environment. And this is the kind of thing that we have to fight as people, as individuals, um, because we care about this stuff. The green ooze, the, the, PFPD, uh, the PFAS in the water. This is something that we didn't even really know was an issue four or five years ago. And mm. now it's just everywhere. So yeah. um, we under, we're coming to grips to things when it's too late, like you just said. But we got to start getting ahead of it. And there's a huge group of people, especially this newest generation, the, the, the kids coming into you know, anywhere from high school into their 30s, they care about this. They understand that this is something that something is a long generational um, issue that they are going to look at for the rest of their lives. Sure. And the people I see have been very active on it, and I and I have faith in that they're going to have find a way to get past it. Yeah, Jim, you, you know, one of the things that you're getting, um, one of the things that you're 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 getting at here is this narrative and the the sort of master narrative right what is the master narrative is it that everything is okay and we ought to make sure that the environmental regulations that we have don't interfere with business or <clears throat> should that narrative be focused on preserving the environment and and uh, fighting climate change even if it's at the expense of business or financial concerns. And, and Nick, I think that's a very difficult narrative to try to balance. Well, it's difficult in, on a number of layers. I mean, one is that we as humans are not good um, at thinking about things beyond a 10, 20, 30 year time horizon. We just we just aren't, right? We're dealing with immediate issues, right? We have pocketbook issues. We're worried about paying the bills. We're worried about the health and safety of our kids. You know, all these things that are really kind of closer to home. So when you start talking about these larger whether they're regional, national, or global issues, like something with climate change, it gets a little bit harder to, to grab people's attention and to help focus them on collective steps that can lead to a positive result. And I think there's been a real failure of political leadership in getting us to that point on climate change. Um, and, and, you know, I think the caller made some really good points about the revolving door. I mean, this is a huge problem where, depending on the administration in power, you either have people that were working in environmental organizations that are now in the EPA, or they were working for uh, industry lobbyists that are now in EPA and back and forth. And, and we, we haven't really had a just kind of collective march in the, in the right direction. Um, and so, so I, I, I do agree with the caller that we, we're seeing a big um, kind of up, upswelling of interest and passion amongst younger generations that realize what a serious problem climate change is and that we have to get very aggressive and focus on it. And that's where ideas like the Green New Deal are really interesting because you're framing this as this is a societal issue. This is something that needs our collective action, and we need to really focus massive resources at addressing it, or we're going to have very drastic consequences in the near future. And, and that's why I think we need to frame these things as big challenges, but also meet them with a big response. Yeah. When we see these kinds of spectacular things happening, happening green ooze mm-hmm. on 696, wildfires in California or Australia, it does seem to capture people's attention for the moment. But I do think that there is difficulty connecting those events with the larger picture. That's right. There is. And and so I always try and kind of bring it back closer to home and talk about you know changes that we're seeing that we're observing here in Michigan that you can directly link back to a warming climate. 
Um, and those are things just like average temperatures. You know, you look at our average temperatures, they're, they're definitely rising. You, you can't dispute that. Um, we look at the severity of our storms. We're having much more intense and significant rain events in the spring, summer, and fall than we used to have. Um, less frequent rains, but more intense rains when we do get them. Um, and, and we're seeing, you know, changes in water levels on the Great Lakes. Uh, we're seeing increased erosion around the Great Lakes because of record high water levels after just only six, seven years ago being at record lows. And so so we're, we're seeing these just kind of broad, quick shifts um, that are, you know, really impactful here in Michigan that we can see. We just have to think about, okay, all of this stuff is going on, you know, the, the bushfires in Australia, the wildfires in California, um, warming Great Lakes temperatures, increased rain events. They're all related to the same sickness, which is a warming climate. And we know how to get at that. It's just having the political will to do it. And that, because you're right, it's going to cost money. <laughs> I mean, we, we can't sugarcoat this, right? Look, we can't just say, okay, we're going to, with, with increased investment in renewable energy, we're going to create enough jobs that it's going to offset the cost. Well, no, there's going to be a shift, all right? Some companies are going to lose money. You know, if you shut down Exxon, <laughs> that is going to be a significant sure blow to a lot of people into their investment portfolios and everything like that. So we, we have to be realistic about this, um, but it is a challenge that, that we can meet as long as we have that kind of collective vision and collective action. Uh, let's go to Kaylin in Troy. Kaylin, what's on your mind? Hi, yeah, I uh, totally feel that um, the excuse that it's too expensive is really saddening because I don't know, of course, what everyone does with their money, but it seems like they have enough money to at least try and if more bigger businesses try to be more eco-friendly then it'll be possible for the other ones to do that as well a lot more easier Hmm. a lot more easy Hmm. uh kayla i appreciate uh, the call and uh, the comments i think you're you're absolutely right that uh, that leadership matters Uh, nick shrek i want to get you to react to something that i saw recently in the washington post It pointed to findings published in Nature Climate Change yesterday, which revealed that, quote, for the first time, scientists have detected the fingerprint of human-induced climate change on daily weather patterns at the global scale. If further verified, the findings would upend the long-established narrative that daily weather is distinct from long-term climate change. I think that maybe goes a long way to connecting these things that we see with the things that we can't see, which is the sort of long-term effect of climate change. That's right. And for a long time now, you know, decades, there have been, there's been this argument of like, well, you know, when we talk about climate change, we need to look at, you know, global temperature averages, global changes in precipitation and storm intensity, that kind of thing. You know, don't consider the weather out your window um, when you think about climate change. Um, And that's because you would get people like our president who would say, oh, look, it's, it's, really cold in June or something. And so therefore climate change must be this hoax. Um, and, and I mean, I remember a few years ago, there were, you know, Republican members of Congress having a snowball fight in Washington, DC and saying like, look, how could there be climate change? It's snowing in the spring in DC. Um, and, and all of that is just sort of distraction and diversion. And, and I only bring it up to say that that's kind of the, the type of narrative that we're up against. It's that you'll, you'll have people that will sow disinformation, they'll sow discord, um, to try and get us off track. But we're, more and more research and data comes out every day tying a warming climate to the type of weather patterns and things that we're experiencing, again, out the window. So th- that study is really interesting because it's the first kind of definitive one that we have showing that, yeah, we can talk about climate change in terms of weather because a warming climate has these impacts on weather and, and on the jet stream and all sorts of, of air currents and ocean currents and all of that. And so we can start making these connections um, in, in a very um, deliberative way, which I think will, again, help kind of 
feed the, the, the initiative that we have to get going here and get serious about reducing our carbon emissions uh, very quickly. Mm. I, I want to talk specifically about these fires in Australia and in California. Mm-hmm. And again, define some, some terms, I guess, in the idea that are these about climate change? We have fires all right. the time. Wildfires aren't new in California. What about what we're seeing today is distinct from what we've seen in the past, and why should we be more worried about it? Sure. I mean, there's always been wildfires. I mean, since we've had forests on this planet, um, even you know pre, pre-humans, pre um, there, there were forest fires. We can go back and look at the uh, the fossil record and all that and, and know that that's occurred. Um, so one of the things, and, it, and it, when, you, when you hear people in California or in, in Australia talk about the issue, they'll say like, oh, we need to do a better job of thinning out the forest or thinning out the bush so that when you have these fires, they're less intense, there's less, less heat created. And what I mean by that is that you get like overgrowth, uh, scrub brush and things that grow in the forest, and that if you thin that out, um, you, you lower the intensity of these these fires when they occur but the way that it's tied to climate change is, is pretty significant and that is you know we're seeing record temperatures in australia so the higher temperatures longer periods of drought longer dry season that is you know drying out reducing the moisture content in plants and in the soil and so when you do have fires they burn more intensely and they they burn trees and other growth that otherwise might have been able to survive a fire going through the same thing happens in, in california you know we're seeing Longer periods of drought. Remember, just just a couple years ago, there had been this record drought in California. Mm-hmm. There was all the water rationing that was ongoing, um, and and significant pushback from people saying that that they were going too far in their in their water rationing. But the the problem is is that we have a warmer, drier climate, and there are these places like parts of California, like Australia, like parts of of the American Southwest, where you're going to see places that once were green, either um, you know meadow type areas or forested areas turning into more of like a desert type condition. And, and we, we can track that and see where it's going. And that is related to a warmer, drier climate in those places. That's not to say that everywhere in the world will experience those changes. Here in Michigan, we may end up being wetter and a little bit cooler. You know, it, it remains to be seen based on weather patterns and all of that. But there are certain parts of the globe where, where climate change is directly related to increased intensity in, in forest fires and brush fires. Hmm. Uh, I also want to talk about the Green New Deal, which is a congressional resolution that was laid out in the beginning of last year. And depending on whom you ask, it's either this exciting and comprehensive plan to address climate change, or it is a socialist plot to have all of us working by candle power <laughs> right. again. The, the thing, again, that I think jumps out to me is the disparate response to this, that that you have some people who are very enthusiastic about the idea that this is the right way to deal with climate change, and you had other people who say this is a, a, a severe overreaction and would tumble the economy into crisis and cause all kinds of problems that we don't have now. Well, if you go back to the early 1970s, and if, if we were to look at news reports at the time when Congress was considering things like the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, mm-hmm. the Endangered Species Act, the National Environmental Policy Act, all of these laws that we, we depend on today to protect our environment. There were all sorts of doomsday scenarios, gloom and doom saying like, you know, if you pass this Clean Air Act, companies are going to go out of business. They're going to have to shutter the doors because they won't be able to install scrubbers on a smokestack. There were all these projections about how we were going to basically handcuff ourselves from an economic growth perspective because the rest of the world wasn't going to have these aggressive environmental regulations. Well, all of that proved to be false, right? Mm-hmm. We continued to have um, an average growth in GDP that was pretty impressive over the last 50 years. Um, and we, we have 
better control of the pollution into our environment. Um, and, and we can do this. We have done it. It's just, it's just you have to actually be honest about the costs and honest about the consequences that will, will occur if you pass these big sweeping pieces of legislation. So the Green New Deal, what, what I think is interesting about the framing is looking at you know, the New Deal under uh, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, this was looking at kind of reshaping the way we did things across the society here in this country, creating all sorts of levels, new agencies in the government, the alphabet soup agencies that were created, like Tennessee Valley Authority, um, the Civilian Conservation Corps, which did a ton of work in trying to reforest the country that had been completely cut down and plowed over. This is, you know, during the Dust Bowl days, right? Mm -hmm. Like they had to do all sorts of habitat restoration to try and keep soil in place and try and um, make soil that had been completely uh, neutralized of any sort of potential to grow crops to kind of reinvigorate it with with um, life. And so, anyway, the, the idea is, is, is that type of framing. You know, we're facing this crisis. We need to think about it in a way that will really change the way we get our energy, change the way we move around in terms of transportation, and also trying to address some of these systemic problems, like you mentioned with environmental racism, you know, how do we grow our economy in a green and healthy way that doesn't disproportionately disadvantage people, um, people of color, people of low income, um, you know, how do we do that? And so the Green New Deal tries to uh, address all that in a holistic approach. And, and because it's so broad and so sweeping, it has been attacked as sort of an, an overreach. But I think it gets to the crisis at hand and the type of response that we need to address it. And it is a resolution, which means that it is not law. Right. If it were to become law, how long would it take and how vigilant will we have to be about making sure that it actually changes what it's supposed to change. Well, we, we, we'd certainly have to be uh, very vigilant. Um, I mean, the, the problem is right now, we don't even have um, targets to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions below, you know, 2010 levels. And so we have a lot of work to do. In fact, we're, we're seeing increases in greenhouse gas emissions from our transportation sector. Um, so we, we have a lot of work that needs to be done. And and really, I think this gets to, I mean, this is a, it's a global issue, right? We, we had the Paris Accord, which now the United States is the only country that, that has now removed ourselves from that agreement. Um, so we are, you know, way behind the curve of where we need to be. Um, and so I, I think it does come down to us as the public. It comes down to us, you know, not only talking to our current elected officials, but demanding, getting people on record, you know, at presidential debates, at congressional debates, at, you know, letters to the editor, whatever we can do, try and get people on record as to, you know, Okay, if you don't support the Green New Deal as it's been outlined in this resolution, what are you committed to do to address the climate crisis? You know, what what's your plan, right? If if this isn't something if that you don't you like agree this, with, what do you want? Yeah, to right. Do? What what are you going to do? How are you going to help um, solve this problem? And I think that has to be part of the discussion during the election. Um, you know, while we're doing candidate screenings, all that type of stuff. Hmm. Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion about the environment. We're going to talk about the Blue New Deal, which you may not even have heard of yet. And stay with us on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You are listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking about the environment this hour with Nick Schreck, 
who's an environmental law expert, director of clinical programs, and associate professor of law at the University of Detroit Mercy Law School. We're doing that as the initial conversation in a series that we're calling Defining 2020, a series where we want to take a closer look at many of the issues that will challenge us here in the year 2020 as we go through a presidential election and lots of other things that will bring up all kinds of issues that we should be concerned about. We want to hear from you as well. What are you thinking about the environment? Are you thinking about this green ooze on 696 and wondering what effect it'll have on our drinking water, for instance? Are you watching the wildfires in places like Australia or recently in California and wondering if that is a consequence of climate change and what we might do about it, just give us a call and tell us what is on your mind about the environment. What are you worried about? What are you worried about for the future for your children or your grandchildren? What kind of planet will we leave behind? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work you in to the conversation. Uh, Nick, I want to start uh, this segment talking about the Blue New Deal, which I have to admit is something that I didn't know much about until recently. I mm-hmm. would imagine that a lot of our listeners are in the same position. Right. So this was a plan. Um, So Senator Elizabeth Warren, who's running for president, um, announced one of her plans is this this Blue New Deal, which would really focus on the health of the oceans. Um, There's a little piece at the end that talks about the Great Lakes, which we'll get to in a minute. But really, (laughs) this is I know right at the end. When I was reading it, I'm like, all right, come on, I got to get. It's got to be something on the Great Lakes there. Uh, You know, because interestingly, you know, the Great Lakes. in many areas of, of federal law, so national law, are treated as if they were oceans, right? We have a coastal zone uh, management program here, just like you would have in New England or mm-hmm. in the Gulf Coast. Um, and so it was, I was just kind of looking for that in the plan. All right, when are we going to get to the Great Lakes? But um, in any case, so, so the main focus is looking at the health of our oceans, or I should say the threats to the health of our oceans, um, related to climate change. Ocean acidification is a big problem. We're seeing die-offs of, of coral reefs and a lot of um, disease and things within coral reefs and within fisheries. And so what, what this plan looks at is actually investing money in sort of like regenerative processes, ways to harvest fish or ways to grow and harvest shellfish that will not only provide good protein that we need for our food supply, but that will also kind of nourish the health of the ocean. It also looks at ways to try and reduce the amount of trash and waste that's in the ocean. This is a huge problem. We've talked about this before in terms of plastics, but Mm -hmm. um, there's all sorts of waste that makes its way into our oceans. There's a massive garbage patch in the the Pacific, bigger than the state of Texas, of just (laughs) just plastic and other waste. Um, So so there's a massive problem with just physical pollution of the oceans that this, this plan would look to address. And really it's kind of like focusing focusing federal resources and federal attention on the health of our oceans and trying to look at ways to make sure that they're a sustainable source of a food supply for us now and into the future. And then also looking at ways to kind of build the ecosystem and the resiliency of the ecosystem around the oceans. And then at the end, there's a little bit about the the Great Lakes. And, you know, here in the Great Lakes, we have something called the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative. This was actually a plan that was, um, passed during the uh, George uh, W. Bush administration and signed into law by President Bush, but it was not funded until the Obama administration. Now every year, about $300 million on average of federal money comes back into the Great Lakes region to work on wetlands rehabilitation Mm -hmm. or um, 
building fish habitat uh, structures out in the Detroit River, um, you know, doing work that will improve the water quality and the health of our ecosystem, and also some money to help clean up some of these contaminated sites um, along our waters. Many of our harbors and ports are very polluted, left over from you know industrialization. So. Um, this plan, the Blue, the Blue New Deal, would also kind of help infuse some resources into the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative and the efforts that are ongoing to, to clean up the Great Lakes. Uh, but really, it's a focus on trying to draw people's attention to the challenges that we face within our, our ocean and Great Lakes ecosystems and, and trying to marshal some federal resources to address those problems. Yeah. Uh, the importance of that, though, to the discussion about the Great Lakes, mm-hmm. even though it is not focused on it, I think is huge. Right. This idea of how to take better care of the fresh water that we have here. This is a, uh, an issue that has come up over and over again. We've made some progress and then of course we always slip back a little. Right. Uh, but but I, I can't imagine that something like this would unfold without much more significant attention on our water here, but also places like the Chesapeake Bay. Oh, absolutely, in, in yeah. Maryland, very, very important um, fisheries as well as um, a huge economic engine from in terms of recreation, sport fishing, all those kinds of things. You know, the Great Lakes are, are very important to our regional economy in many ways. Transportation, the big ships that, that ply the waters, um, bringing all sorts of goods and, and um, raw materials as well into the region. Um, again, fisheries, the the recreational aspect, the, the amount of of money in value for for property owners along the Great Lakes. I mean, that's a massive thing too. We can't forget about, um, you know, a huge part of our economy is actually property taxes that are paid um, for people's second homes and cottages along the Great Lakes, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, so if you have beautiful, pristine waters, that is a higher value for your property than if you have contaminated, you know, green ooze flowing into the, the water just upstream from your, from your property. So, um, you know, very, very important from an economic perspective as well as just part of our cultural identity. And, you know, let's not forget the um, importance to our indigenous populations here. Um, territory we sit here in Michigan today was, was ceded by tribes that are still here and existing in Michigan, and they have rights to fish and hunt um, along our Great Lakes. And we have to make sure that those rights and interests are protected as well. Mm. Uh, I want to talk about uh, environmental justice and environmental racism before we run out of time. This is an issue that comes up a lot in cities like Detroit, Mm -hmm. uh, not just because of the demographics of the population here, but also because of the significant environmental issues that we that we face. Think of the incinerator, Mm -hmm. which for. 30 years, I think, uh, was was right in the center of the city in, in, a, in a neighborhood, essentially. Think of how close people live to the Marathon Refinery right. and the other uh, big industrial sites in, in Southwest. Uh, it seems to me that, that at some point, these will become pretty important issues in the political dialogue. We're not quite there yet. I've heard a couple candidates kind of come close to it, but nobody really is hitting this square uh, square on. I I think the closest candidate, I mean, so Governor Inslee from um, Washington State, I believe, um, you know, he really had an aggressive um, environmental justice plan and was meeting with with leaders and and residents here in Detroit when he he was still part of the campaign. Mm -hmm. Um, He really did advance this as a major issue. But just to unpack it a little bit, so when we talk about environmental justice, what we're really getting at is the idea that we need to address historic racism in decisions that were made about permitting of facilities, placement of facilities that generate harmful emissions or harmful waste. 
Back in the 1970s, we talked a few moments ago about all of our modern environmental laws coming onto the books because of massive public pressure. So, you know, hint, hint, if we really want to force Congress <laughs> to act, it's going to take massive public pressure. Um, back then, you know, we passed these laws to regulate pollution, but there wasn't any attempt at addressing the historic injustices in, in just kind of the way the whole system operates. So back in the 1980s, the Congressional Black Caucus, as well as uh, the United Church of Christ, actually did a really major study looking at hazardous waste facilities in the United States. And they found that um, African Americans were um, much more likely to live next to a hazardous waste facility than white Americans. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I don't want to give the exact number, but I want to say it was like 80% more like, I mean, so it was like astronomically high. Um, Congressional Black Caucus does an investigation, and eventually, through their work and efforts in trying to push the first Bush administration, George H.W. Bush, um, they created an Office of Environmental Justice within the EPA, um, looking at these kind of issues. And so, so the, the, the problem is, is that you have facilities located in certain places, and then taking the Detroit as an example, um, you locate industrial facilities in certain places, people live near them, um, but then who lives near them, right? Mm -hmm. um, and do people have the freedom to buy a house and live wherever they want. So you take a community like Detroit where we had practices of redlining, exclusive zoning, um, exclusionary zoning, excuse me, um, which would prevent people of color from moving out of some of these neighborhoods and you end up kind of being stuck in a box next to the Marathon Refinery, say. Mm -hmm. and, and, so, and then you layer on top of that who gets the jobs? Who is being hired by these facilities? Who's getting the economic benefit of the products that these facilities are creating? Oftentimes, that money, those resources were going outside of the neighborhoods that were impacted by the pollution. That practice continues today. And so environmental justice, we're trying to address those still very important lingering issues of historical practices and current practices, yeah. right? So it's still going on today where we have permitting discussions where we need to make sure that if it's in a neighborhood that's Arab American, that the, the permit language is actually translated so people understand what this facility will be doing. Um, you know, these are ongoing issues that we're dealing with today in communities that we often hear the term fence line communities. That's just people that are living, you know, across the street, mm -hmm. directly adjacent to these major polluting facilities. Yeah. Okay, Nick Schreck, environmental law expert, director of clinical programs and associate professor of law at University of Detroit Mercy Law. It was really great to have you here with us today to talk about these issues. Thanks, Stephen. And of course, I'm sure we'll have you back during the year to catch us up on all of these issues, which are not really going anywhere. Hopefully track some progress, right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. right. That's always really important. Okay, that's going to do it for us this week. And uh, we will be back on Monday for our second installment of this series, Defining 2020. We're going to focus on education issues with University of Michigan School of Education Dean Elizabeth Moji. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. Enjoy this first weekend of 2020, and we'll talk again on Monday.